the 360 on Energy and Carbon podcast, hosted by 360 Energy. On today's episode, Dave, John, and I debrief on the greenhouse industry, often an overlooked energy consumer. Some key points include an overview of the greenhouse industry, what energy sources are used, how greenhouses can save on energy, and the impact of climate change on production. Now on to the episode. Welcome back, Dave and John. Today, we are getting into an important industry we haven't touched on quite yet, and that's the greenhouse industry. To start this episode off, it would be good to get a general overview of the greenhouse industry in North America. So firstly, how important is the greenhouse industry to our economy and lifestyle? So I'll take a crack at that first. And Lysandra, I'm really looking forward to this discussion because you've been actively involved in the greenhouse industries on some work with the University of Windsor. Here's my take, and certainly you're going to have a different perspective. You've got a European and, and, and a Canadian perspective. I'm finding now more and more, we as consumers want products all the time. So at one time when I was much younger, you would only receive certain vegetables certain time of the year. Now with technology, we can now have vegetables all year round and, and which you know, whether it's peppers, tomatoes, cucumbers, it's, it's a really nice function. The other thing, what I like is I like it where we know it's fresh produce. So we're fortunate enough here in Canada, specifically in Ontario, where we have a major greenhouse sector in this area and we can get fresh produce, like, you know, in, in two or three days, it's not being shipped from other parts of the world. So we know it's fresh product and, and it's really, it's quite nice. So my view for, for the consumer, it's been uh, fantastic for society in general. And, and I think everyone's getting kind of used to it and more and more people are demanding more of this food from, from my perspective. So the greenhouse industry has been really great for that. And, and for us as a company here, it's a, it's a growing industry. So there's a lots of opportunity. It's very energy intensive. They need uh, and require some assistance in that. So I, I find that extremely helpful. John, from over the pond, what's your perspective? Yeah, I'd agree with you. I think the major thing that's happened in people's diet is that they do expect to be able to, to choose what they eat by looking at a recipe book and choosing anything, not having to go, oh, well, you know, this is in season, that's in season and, and, and whatever. I, th- I think that's one element of it. I think it's also people are driven. We, we have a lot of people who are interested in food miles. So, you know, is, is food local is, is an aspect. I think you could also say, and I think perhaps we may have experienced some of this during the times that we've had, that it is really quite important for any country to have a certain amount of its food that's grown within the country itself and not be relying on, on exports. What we are, I don't think we're, tackle it today, but I think at some point, the question that we do have to tackle is the question of, is it better to grow something in a greenhouse at home or grow it in a hot country and air freight it to to us? And I I think there's a whole interesting discussion we can have on on the carbon footprints and, and the impact of that. But, you know, we refer to it in this country, you know, as the horticultural side rather than agriculture. And it, it is in fact, where I'm based here, we, we've got, it's quite a, an important growing area. And 
you know, that quite a number of jobs come off the back of it as well. Of course, they will be lo local jobs. So I, I think it's, you could almost say in probably most economies, it's, it's perhaps an overlooked part of, of, the, of the food supply industry. People tend to think of either big farms or big food processing plants and then forget what there is in, in the terms of, of, of greenhouses or glasshouses or whatever you want to call them. And, and I'm just going to throw the bit in here. We're probably confusing a hell of a lot of our, of our listeners because we're talking about greenhouses, but not the greenhouse effect. But it's, it's a relevant point, isn't it? What is the greenhouse effect? It's how we're insulating the planet. We're keeping heat in, but we think generally that's not so good. But if we're trying to grow peppers or tomatoes, then it's a completely different uh, environment we're looking for. So, yeah. I, I think it's something we've got to we've got to we've got to raise people's awareness of, and I think it's an industry that is going to be with us for some time to come. I do want to add a, a significant growth is happening certainly uh, in Canada, specifically in the Ontario southwestern region, and and I think there's going to be even more requirements because of the pandemic. And I've been talking to a, a variety of government officials, they're really trying to encourage what we said earlier, where they want to grow locally and not be dependent on other jurisdictions because they're fearful if something happens again, they may not be able to get product. So there's a lot of that thought process of, of, of manufacturing or growing more locally. And I, I think that will be a, an added emphasis in this, in this marketplace as well. It's a form of resilience, isn't it? Really? It, it, it's a resilience there. And you know, the things that may occur, strangely, you know, we may have climate change events that cause a, a producer of food not to be able to, to supply it. I mean, when we're talking of that, and this is, you know, not relative to greenhouses, but you probably know, I don't know if you've picked up, there is a possibility that uh, there's going to be a shortage of coffee and coffee prices are going to rise. Now, coffee's not something that you can grow everywhere, but peppers, tomatoes, and things like that, yes, you can. And so you can protect yourself against those sort of market impacts. Well, in, in preparation for this meeting, my crack research team, they were talking about how in Chile, there are, there's becoming more of a water shortage for yeah. that's impacting crop production. That's a major exporter of crops. And certainly that's having an impact on actually generation of, of power, California, they've got a shortage of, of water. So that's impacting field crop production. So these type of things are actually driving perhaps greenhouse production in other regions where there's an abundance of water. And, and I think that's certainly impacting us in this market. Okay. Can I, can I add, add a bit in here? Cause I'm just thinking we want our listeners to have an overview and there may be an awful lot of people are listening who think of a greenhouse as something they've got in the backyard and, you, you know, not particularly. What, what sort of size operations are we talking about physically for, for greenhouse growers? Well, Sandra, why don't you take a crack at that? Because you've been working quite actively in this area. So why don't you explain that? And I'll add if, I, if there's anything I can bring in. Yeah, honestly, most, at least in the area I'm in, which I'm right outside the Leamington Tangsville area, which is located in Ontario, Canada. And there's a ton of acres of greenhouse there. Most operations are around 20 acres, and a lot of them are expanding to 40, 50 acre greenhouses. Maybe not all of the same operation or in the same area, just because there's so many surrounding, but greenhouses have been purchasing other land and growing there. So some operations go up to 100 acres now. Wow. It, it sounds like a loss. Yeah. 
It is, John. And uh, there is some plans. Uh, we'll see if it actually manifests that to build another thousand acres in southwestern Ontario, even from one particular party. Why there's real interest in our part is they're now starting to use lights, which we'll talk about later. But why it's so important is these greenhouses that the Sanders talking about, when you're 50 to 100 acres, they have the same powered requirements or demands as an automotive assembly plant, which yeah. most people don't realize that type of, that scale and the demand of energy requirements. Yeah. And to get back to the kind of the importance of local greenhouse industry, I've read many studies that kind of state that cons consumers want local produce. And that's kind of showing in, you know, the addition of all these acres of greenhouse. And I won't lie, like when I go to Costco and I see a greenhouse on a produce item that I've actually been to, it feels a little good seeing like I've met the owner of that greenhouse and now I'm eating their produce. So I, I honestly think it's a it's a good shift we're heading towards, especially with saving on transport and things like that. So next, what regions in North America are known to be the hotbed of the greenhouse industry and why? So uh, Ontario would be predominantly the major greenhouse jurisdiction in North America. It's followed by BC and certainly Quebec. If you look at total acres in North America, then you would look at, there would be some production in California, Texas, even in the Northeast, Maine and, and, and Michigan area as well. Those are players, but Ontario would be predominantly the major greenhouse growing facility. And there's probably good reasons for that because of access to land, energies readily available, a pretty cost-effective way. And we have an abundance of water because of the Great Lakes. So, and I, I should mention Niagara this as well, where I'm from, there's quite a bit of greenhouse industries there as well. But, but that, those are predominantly the, the areas. More and more states are trying to role locally. So I think the growth uh, will still be there, but in different jurisdictions, but that's from our uh, research. That's where we're seeing most of the greenhouse production. Yeah. I want to add in Pennsylvania as well. And I believe obviously Mexico is also a huge contributor. It's really good point, Sandra. It is true. If you look at the number of greenhouses, Pennsylvania is actually number one. Mm -hmm. If you look at the acres of greenhouses, California in the States is number one. So it depends on what scale you're baselining. Mm -hmm. So quite a few acres all over North America of greenhouses. What impact does energy cost have on the greenhouse industry? Well, our research shows that typically energy is the second biggest operating cost for greenhouses. I know there's labor costs have shot up dramatically and that's a big challenge for the greenhouse industry. So they're doing a lot of focus in that and trying to do automation. Certainly the pandemic really reinforced the importance of labor and reliability of, of labor and things of that nature. Cause we are really dependent on getting people from other countries to help pick and grow the crops. But, but energy is a major, major operating cost that is focused uh, on. And, and as we've talked about in the past, we, we know it is controllable. So there are things that customers can do, and they do focus on that in from building it to, to operating. Yeah. Just to kind of add on that as well. I know we briefly touched on lighting, but lighting is a huge contributor to the greenhouse industry's energy costs. 
in the sense that their demand is typically, you know, this huge value because of their added lighting. And if anyone's a numbers person, a good quick number, if if a greenhouse is using a specific type of lighting called HPS, which is high pressure sodium, which is very commonly used in the greenhouse industry right now, it's about 500 kilowatts per acre. So that's typically used uh, across the board as a quick number. So to give you an idea, if we're looking at a 20 acre greenhouse, that's already, you know, a 10 megawatt demand, which is huge, uh, a huge load to look at. And, and just to benchmark that, like, you know, there's a lot of manufacturing facilities that might be 500 kilowatts. There's, there's, there, there's not a lot of 10 megawatt or bigger. There is, but the, in, in, as far as numbers, mm-hmm. it, it's, that's a, that's a large load, electrical load to deal with. Yeah. Okay, Dave, I'm going to take over and ask a couple of questions because I'm not the local greenhouse expert and, and, and you are. Uh, we know greenhouses can use many different sources of energy, electricity, natural gas, diesel, biomass, etc. C- c- can, you, can you give us a, a general idea of how or where these forms of energy are used with, with it within a greenhouse? Yeah, certainly. So John, traditional way, certainly in this area has been focusing on natural gas and they use natural gas for the boilers. Those boilers sometimes make CO2. That CO2 is used actually for production. It enhances their production. So you'll, you'll hear some growers talking about, they actually sequence the, the carbon that helps in the production side. So predominantly, if you're looking at energy in that GJ or kilowatt hour, natural gas is a major of energy source. There are exceptions, meaning there's biomass that is being or has been used when natural gas was really high. A lot of people went to the biomass. There's now some movement at foot because of carbon and the burning of natural gas that some people are now moving back to biomass, but then there's some complications. It's not, it's not straightforward. It can be more difficult, but natural gas will be primarily the major energy source if you're looking at, and as uh, Lysandras talked about, not all greenhouses have lighting, like they're, depending on what crop, whether it's a tomato or cucumbers, peppers, there's not much lighting, but we'll talk about that. That's going to change. Lighting is starting to become a factor, but it's still, if you look at the, at the, the mix, natural gas, as far as a unit of energy is predominantly the, the largest one. That being said, because natural gas has been cheap. Electricity costs, as far as a total operating cost for a customer, is a major, major cost that has to be factored. And so that's why perhaps a lot of customers have not moved to lighting, not only the capital cost to actually install the lighting, but actually the operational cost. And so that's something that has to be really worked on to figure out how to do, or else that could have a negative impact on your bottom line. So. But we see more and more greenhouses looking at lighting, which we'll certainly talk about this as well. Now, there are some greenhouse operations that use chillers, not, not a lot. So, so certainly in the flower side, there's some chiller that are you cooling requirements that are used in the other crop, the cannabis crop, but there's some cooling requirements done there. So there's some, some power required, but as Lysandra said, lighting, and, and I'm going to let her step in here because she's done a lot of work in this lighting is predominantly the biggest thing. And then you have fans and pumps, but uh, Lysandra, do you want to weigh in and, and give, give some input based on your research too? 
Yeah, for sure. So I would just say if we're looking at an unlit greenhouse, and I this same load also applies to a lit greenhouse, but if we're looking at unlit greenhouses, we're looking at, you know, office space, which is quite small, maybe a small manufacturing line to pack those vegetables, a brief amount of automation and control systems, irrigation, pumps, and fans. That typically is made up of what an unlit greenhouse's load is. Once you start looking at a lit greenhouse, then you have just the addition of the lighting. So that 500 kilowatts per acre that I mentioned, if you're using HPS, if you're using LEDs, which everyone is pretty familiar with across the board, LEDs are about, I believe, a 30% reduction. I mean, you do have to increase the amount of fixtures you buy, but you are saving a bit on the electricity end. So those are kind of like what makes up, I would say, the electricity load in a greenhouse. I also want to mention that you know, there are still the other sources of energy, for instance, diesel generators. A lot of these greenhouses have a small, you know, about 250 kilowatt diesel generator, just so that, you know, if, if the grid fails, they can turn on those generators and have their irrigation systems running, their fans, their pumps, very minimal loads. And, and of course, you know, right now, a lot of these greenhouses don't use those very much. So those generators are very much in good shape. And again, still diesel generators. And then as Dave mentioned, the boilers. Boilers are used for heating a greenhouse. So you won't find a typical heating unit in these greenhouses. They just use hot water pipes to kind of keep it leveled. So that's where the natural gas boiler end works. And of course, those boilers produce a byproduct of CO2, which is used for crop growing. And if um, if their boiler, let's say, does not have the CO2, then people turn to liquid CO2 to kind of assist with the, the process of growing. So CO2 is actually very crucial in the greenhouse growing industry, which is funny because if you listen to any of our other episodes, CO2 kind of has a bad, bad rep, right? We don't want CO2 in the manufacturing yeah. industry. We don't need that. In greenhouse industry, we love CO2. And, and that's something that definitely we will be talking about later, especially in the sense of carbon tax. And I'll add, when we look at these boilers for greenhouses, because we, we work in greenhouses and in manufacturing, these boilers dwarf many of the boilers in manufacturing. They're they're Because if you think about it, you, you, you're trying to heat a 20-acre glass greenhouse or 50 or 100-acre. That's that's quite a bit of heat that's that's required there. So that's a like And for context, Sandra, I thought it would be worthy. So, you know, we, we talked about for a 10-acre Operation that's five megawatts of electrical power for lighting, but but typically for the fans and pumps, you might have two to three hundred kilowatts of what we call base load for the fans and pumps. Just so everyone has an understanding of how the electric electricity would be used in that type of operation. Right. Yeah. So actually, like Dave mentioned, the pepper industry isn't really lit as of now. There's only, at least in Canada, there's only one lit pepper greenhouse. So to give you that kind of perspective, peppers also make up one third of the crop in Ontario. So if peppers now turn to lighting, that's a huge added load on the electricity grid, which is very important to you know pay attention to because like Dave mentioned, you know uh, a lot of people are waiting to turn on their lights. Well, actually a lot of people are waiting to turn on their lights because the grid doesn't have enough capacity for them to kind of tune into. And that also, you know, the greenhouse industry, at least in Canada is a billion dollar industry. So if we're hindering a billion dollar industry because we don't have enough electricity, there's a big problem. Guy, I was going to say, it's interesting you touch on that because this is where we start coming back into other areas because we know in most jurisdictions, our grids aren't 
fit for purpose, really, for, for the future. You know, we've gone from major centralized large power stations radially feeding out. And of course, now we're going to have to be looking at distributed. We've got to be able to pick up various loads in different places. And I'm guessing that a typical location of a greenhouse may not be somewhere where the utility has thought that they wanted to have a high, high rate of supply. So yeah, it gets complicated, doesn't it? John, you bring up a really good point because uh, this is something we find frequently, which is maybe surprising to some people, is there, there are parties that buy land, parcels of land, and, and they want to, whether it's manufacturing or greenhouse, and they think automatically that because they bought the land and they see the power lines there and they see, and automatically they just plug in and away they yeah. go. <laughs> and it, it's, it's, it's not surprising to you or Lysander, but there, there's many times where the grid, as you kind of indicated, may not have the appropriate power or gas in place. So, so yeah. consumers, before they do the, the due diligence, is they need to make sure they got the capacity. Don't don't assume you've got the power or gas. Be, you know, when you buy the land, and it happens frequently, which would sound surprising to a lot. Yeah, yeah. and it, go on, Lysandra. Oh, I was just going to say it's it's unfortunate because a lot of greenhouses have had lighting fixtures in for let's say a year or two and probably won't get the electricity to turn them on for another couple of years. Well, now the price of those lights are, you know, depreciating. And also, you know, those lights are just sitting there for years. So unfortunately, it, it, if there's no electricity available, these greenhouses are, are really on a standstill point. And those lights are not cheap to buy. No. You can give it, it's a major, it's a major expense. So I, I, I just think it, Again, this is why there's an opportunity for an organization like us to help customers. Can, can I can I just th throw a question in then if we're talking about lighting? People, you know, you mentioned HPS and you mentioned LED. And I'm thinking particularly for, for people who are listening in, it, what's the requirement of light? I mean, what's the lighting doing when it's in a greenhouse? Is it the normal illumination spectrum? What are we looking at? Great question. So when you think about it, we just listed you know, a ton of different places where greenhouses are. So if we're talking weather, it's not sunny all year round in snowy Ontario. So from, you know, let's say October to May, it's, it's a little gloomy. So they need the lighting to supplement what would typically naturally be the sun. There are more advanced lights now that kind of meet different spectrums and try to mimic the sun and things like that. But fundamentally why we have lights, it's to supplement, you know, the natural sunlight that we no longer get because it's snowing or something like that. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and if I could add, I mean, Ontario, uh, because of the, the way the current uh, setup is, it's quite attractive for growers to, uh, because we have marketed time of use and, and different rates that customers can capitalize on. In, in Kelowna, it's typically really cloudy and overcast, you know, in the winter. But there's not a lot of lighting there because of the way the power structure is set up. It doesn't really engage or encourage growers to do that, which is really interesting because they, they work with a hydraulic water system. But anyhow, the point is certainly location has an impact on heating, lighting, but also what utility rate and rate structures are will also impact what customers. I do want to mention also though, um, Places even like California that are sunny all year round also have negative impacts because then the greenhouses get so hot. 
So, I mean, there's never really a win-win. I feel like with every location, we kind of now with climate change need to adjust something, whether it add light or, you know, add some sort of cooling or add screens to make sure that the greenhouse stays cooler, things like that. Can, can I just throw a supplemental in? It's a silly little supplemental, but we're talking about availability of power for some of these people. Is anyone looking at, for example, and don't immediately shoot me down, looking at solar panels to drive the lights, but via a battery system? So I, I know I was speaking to Amafre yesterday and they were talking about an even case study here in Niagara where they were actually uh, looking at putting solar solar panels to, to, to do that, John. It, it's early, early days. Yeah. If you think about it, like as Lysander said, 500 kilowatts, it like an hour and that's just one acre it, you better have a lot of battery storage yeah. right and and also have the capacity lots of land to actually generate that power of solar i'm not dismissing at the like in the future there will there, there will perhaps technology will allow that but it's early days on that side of it for sure yeah on that i have i have seen a technology which is not widely used, but it's a concept of a, of a glazing panel for a greenhouse that is both a, a, a solar collector and provides sun in as well. But of right. course, we're then talking of much more expensive fabric. And then when we're multiplying that by acres, it may be some time before that really catches on. And again, what you're discussing in the case that I'm talking about, this is for a leafy green location that's like, as Lysander said, there's certain light content that yeah. you need. So if you reduce the lighting throughout the year, that could have a negative impact on your production of the crop. So you have to be very picky where you put this and how it fits. I'm conscious that we actually could have an entire podcast on lighting in greenhouses the way we couldn't we? But I'm, can I, can I move us on? And I'm going to, I'm going to ask the idiot question. So really, given that you've got to do all these things, it's not really possible for greenhouses to reduce their energy use and cost. Well, that is perhaps a thought process that many people have. We have actually found that that's not true. So a lot of organizations will focus on the build of the, the greenhouse and to get the appropriate spec equipment in place, which is really important for sure. But we found actually the operation of that equipment and the knowledge of a variety of people in the greenhouse, knowing what can or should be done, there's significant opportunities. And I, I know we'll talk about this later as far as case studies, but it's not just strictly the equipment. And, and again, this sounds familiar probably to manufacturers. It's actually how you operate the equipment and the people knowing how to use the equipment based on market conditions. So I stress everything that needs to be done is for production reasons. It's not just for energy reasons. But if you have that knowledge base on energy and what can be done to actually use it differently or more effectively, you actually can reduce your energy costs. And, and we have seen that commonly. And certainly Lysandra is involved in some stuff in that type of activity as well. Yeah, I think we can go quite a few different routes on that. So first, I think education is very important. A lot of these greenhouses, actually, I don't think we explained this at all, but the way greenhouses kind of operate, at least in my experience, I've seen the owners are very hands-on. There's typically a grower or, or a few growers and they kind of manage how the crop grows. And then there are workers that kind of, you know, deal with the crops daily. And there's, you know, accountants and other office personnel. Some people have their own sales and marketing team. Some people hire a third party, that type of deal. 
So talking about, you know, all these different contributors into a greenhouse, well, a lot of these people kind of just get the bill, pay it, don't think that there's anything they can do about it. See a number, maybe think it's a little high, but are like, okay, no time to do this today. Pay that bill and move on. So I think the biggest problem is that people aren't really looking into what they're paying for. And I think in other any other sense, greenhouse owners are looking into, you know, what seed am I buying? What type of lights am I buying? So why aren't they looking at that for energy? So I think that's super important. Another Another important thing is, at least in jurisdictions where there are so many greenhouses, most of them have a representative organization. So if you go to that organization in numbers, I really think that greenhouses have the power to change a lot of things in the electricity sector to benefit them. In some jurisdictions, you will see an agricultural rate. You will also see other things that, you know, agriculture is it's very agriculturally focused. However, in, in areas where it isn't, I do think there's there's so much room to kind of change that. And this is, uh, this thought process is not unique to greenhouses. John, as you know, because I think, think we've been led to believe because of energy is just a utility that you can't control. It's, it's kind of a legacy thought process and no one uh, in their organizations have been trained and educated as Lysandra said of what they can do. So this is not unique to the greenhouse industry for sure. Can, can I ask you then just as a bit of follow on from this? I mean, we, we've seen, and I'm not going to say it's us saying this, but we've seen various authorities say that in manufacturing, for example, you know, having a good energy management program could save you between five and 20% of your energy use and, and therefore associated cost. Could we use those figures in the greenhouse industry or what would they be, do you think? No, absolutely. So yes, in fact, in special situations with rates and markets uh, actually can even be much higher, much, much higher, not for all cuts, but I, I don't say to you conservatively, I think 20%, it, it's not done with a flick of a switch, although sometimes it is, but it's completely doable. And it comes back to the education and awareness on, on energy issues and how they use energy, what markets, how the equipment operates. It's, 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 it, it's measurable, John. So the answer is yes, for sure. You want to weigh into that, Lysandra, anything you want to add? Yeah, I, I think everything you, you just said is very true. And I think also when we're looking at how a greenhouse structure is formed, a lot of them have crop consultants, right? And crop consultants and the crop itself actually are such a small factor in their cost. So if we're looking at energy as, you know, the second cost right behind labor, how come there's no energy consultant in the mix? We, we actually have a, a grower quoting that from Alberta saying that's, it, we're hopeful that that thought process will start permeating throughout the whole organization. Okay. Okay. I've got, 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 got another question for you here and it's sort of expanding on the same point. So, you know, we've, we talked, it, you know, you've introduced the growing consultant and everything else. And we know what we're trying to do is if we've got a greenhouse, we want to get the maximum yield of top quality produce from that greenhouse and getting it to market. So we're going to control the lighting. We're going to control the irrigation. We're going to control CO2. We're going to control ventilation. We're going to control the entire microclimate, probably to quite narrow margins. Does that not mean there's a, does that 
eliminate all the scope we've got for, for reducing energy. So most growers, by the way, would think that's correct. In fact, they would think, John, the work that we would be doing would mess with that whole thing. But when you actually bring them up to speed and they have a better understanding of what we're doing, it actually enhances their production. Actually, you can grow more crop. So, so here's an example, just as, as an analogy, like for lighting, that has a huge impact on the growth of the crop. So when with uh, relamping, if the, the lights are, you know, there's failure in lights and there's not a proper relamping thing that can impact your production. It can actually imp impact your electrical costs. So, so there's things that, um, that need to be educated to the growers so they understand it's not going to negatively impact them. It's actually going to positively impact them for sure. Yeah. And I think, John, actually, I think a lot of the times what they think these set points are not changeable are actually, you know, more flexible than they think. And I met this owner this past year and I was really surprised by everything he was saying because he contradicted every other owner I'd met. But he was kind of like, oh, why? Some, some days I don't even add extra CO2. He's like, it's too expensive. I'm not doing it. And obviously he, he, he produces so much a year. And so that kind of makes me believe. I'm like, okay, so you kind of turning it off for a little bit. How much does that actually impact your production? And how much are you actually saving? But, you know, it is a very confidential industry. Everyone kind of likes to keep their statistics yeah. to themselves, right? So it, it's a matter of kind of waiting for for some research or people doing their own trials at their own greenhouse. So maybe having a certain acre where, you know, maybe we don't give as much lighting to, so we're saving on electricity. Maybe we're not dosing it with as much CO2. So now you're saving on that natural gas boiler usage. I, I think it kind of takes a trial in their own greenhouse. And I, I do think these crops are very resilient in the greenhouse space. And at any time, you know, you can kind of just add in some more water, things like that. So I, I think, I think there's more room in the greenhouse growing process to change than people think. That's all for today's episode of the 360 on Energy and Carbon podcast. Stay tuned for part two of this conversation next week. Make sure to check us out on our website at 360energy.net and follow us on LinkedIn at 360 Energy Inc. Tune into our podcast on Apple Music and Spotify by searching the 360 on Energy and Carbon. You can watch the video recording and subscribe on YouTube at 360 Energy Inc. See you next week.